So I wanted you to uh, begin to think about Bethany because uh, it is the site of perhaps the most astonishing miracle or attesting sign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to begin to consider it tonight in John chapter 11. Yes, we made it out of John 10. Uh, speaking of miracles, yes, thank you for your applause and enthusiasm. <laughs> so in John 11 uh, is a record, as you will see over the next few weeks, of this uh, rather astounding miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which took place in the village you just became somewhat familiar with, Bethany. Uh, the question could be asked, why is it that the Lord performed that sign and any of the others which are recorded in John's gospel? There are many, and you wonder, why did he do it? Uh, the answer to that question is given to us at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the purpose of the miracles, the word miracle actually means a sign that attests to the authority of the miracle worker. And John tells us the purpose of all these is that ones might notice this, see the authority of the Lord Jesus and believe in him for whom he is, Savior and Lord. And the Lord had much to say, his words, many of which are recorded in John's gospel. And yet the Lord was wise enough to know mere words were not enough for all listeners. And therefore, he chose to authenticate his words with marvelous and miraculous works. That's the point of the miracles in the Bible. They're not done by the miracle worker at random, not a sideshow, no crass dramatics. He wasn't trying to be sensationalistic or dramatic. He was giving people who doubt, the ones like us, an opportunity to see that his words were authentic and substantiated. Therefore, his words were backed up by his miraculous works. And so the Lord, we see it recorded in John's gospel, performed a series of outstanding miracles and signs, and these have been written, I'll read it again, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I hope you do. Uh, we are required to access this Jesus by faith, but don't misunderstand. It's not the kind of faith that puts logic on the shelf. Absolutely not. Our faith, our apprehension of this Jesus by faith is not in spite of logic. It's consistent with it. It's quite logical to accept the Lord Jesus as Savior, for he alone authenticated his claims to be able to forgive our sin by the attesting signs which he did. Now, the one we will read about tonight, or begin to read about tonight, is perhaps the most astonishing of all of the Lord's signs. This happens to be number seven, if you're counting, in John's gospel. 
And here we will see that the Lord actually raises a man from death. Now, there were prior resurrections. In fact, two others which took place at the Lord's powerful hands. But I think this one is even more astounding because this man raised from death had been dead for, do you happen to know how many days? Four days. You know what happens to a body? how it decays and deteriorates over that period of time. And so for this man in that situation to be raised to life, well, this is quite an astounding thing. Again, attesting to and substantiating the words of Christ Jesus. So let's begin to read about this. We won't get too far tonight because there's just too much to cover. Anyway, verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now, a certain man, don't look further, don't look further. What's his name? Just checking. That's right. A certain man was sick. Lazarus, you got it right, of Bethany. Now, you know something a little bit about Bethany. It's, uh, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Beit Ani. Beit means house, Ani, of the poor. Bethany means house of the poor. Lazarus's name is Lazarus in Greek, but in Hebrew, it's Eleazar. Eleazar, which means God is my help. Never has a man been more appropriately named, as we will see over the next few weeks. Eleazar is his name. God is my help. So Bethany is located on the uh, eastern slope of an elevated area, you've heard of it, called the Mount of Olives. On the eastern side of the Mount of Olives is Beit Ani, or House of the Poor. There lived this sick man, Lazarus, or Eleazar. God is my help. By the way, whenever you see a name in the Bible that has those two letters, E-L-L, in it, that's a form of the divine name. Eleazar, God is my help or Elohim, or El Shaddai. All of these names are a reference to divinity, to Almighty God. Well, so Bethany was not a very significant place. It was located approximately a mile and a half to two miles to the east of Jerusalem. So if you're in Jerusalem and wanting to go to Bethany, you'd head east a little bit. You could walk it. You would cross... Uh, a, an area called the Kidron Valley, and then that would take you onto the Mount of Olives. You would ascend on the Mount of Olives, get to its top, and on the other side, the eastern slope, you are in Bethany or Beit Ani. Now we read in the first verse that this man who was sick, Lazarus, was also connected in this village to two ladies named Mary and her sister Martha. Soon we'll see they were a family. Lazarus the brother, Mary and Martha the two sisters. Now you may be aware of the fact that the name Mary in the Bible frequently occurs. So there are many Marys in the Bible. You know of some. Mary, the mother of the Lord. Mary from Magdala or Mary Magdalene, and so on. How are we to know which Mary this is? John, in anticipation 
of the possibility that we may get this confused uh, specifies which Mary this is. This is what he does. Notice in verse 2. It was the Mary, by the way, um, her name in Hebrew is Miriam. Miriam, not Mary. We'll go for Mary, but her name is really Miriam. It was, this Mary was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet, if you can imagine it, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick, just so that we know which Mary it is. Now, you are aware of this event where Mary stepped up and showed her sacrificial devotion to the Lord by doing what is described here in verse 2. But here's something you may find a little problematic. Do you know John doesn't report this incident until the next chapter? We have not read about this Mary doing this yet, and we don't read about her doing this until you get to John chapter 12. Now, some people have a problem with that, but it's no problem at all. Listen, uh, by the time John finished recording all of the chapters in John's gospel, many years had passed, and John knows by the time his biography or his gospel of the Lord Jesus was complete, this very outstanding event involving Mary and her devotion to the Lord would be widely known. Not only that, the event is recorded also earlier in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. So John knows his readers, the readers of the gospel, are quite familiar with this event involving Mary and her show of devotion to the Lord. So we don't, though we don't get to it until chapter 12, by the time they got this book completed and were reading it in the first century, they were well aware of this very significant event. So this is the Mary who John is speaking about here. Now, verse 3, so the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to him. Who is the him? Yeah, that's Jesus. We know that. How did they send word to him? Do we know that? No, we don't. So let's not make the Bible say more than it chooses to tell us. We do know the sisters, they're concerned about their brother. He's sick. He's not getting any better. Somehow they managed to send word to this Jesus with whom they already had a relationship, apparently. They knew him. He knew them. You know, the Lord oftentimes spent time in Beit Ani, Bethany, when he came into Jerusalem on at least three Passovers and many other of the feasts of Israel, he usually stayed in Bethany because Jerusalem would be quite crowded during these feasts of Israel. So he would stay a mile and a half, two miles away. Again, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, he would cross over it. There was then a, a kind of a bridge over the Kidron Valley, which the Lord could use to walk right over into the temple precincts. So uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus knew the Lord, were known by him, and so on. So the sisters send word to him, and this is what they say. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. I find this to be marvelous. They're pained for their brother. They're deeply concerned They know he may die, and this is all they say. They really don't tell the Lord what to do. In fact, they make no specific request. They simply present the need to him. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
They, they state the need and they leave the response up to the Lord. It's very interesting to me. And notice the sole basis for their hope and for their appeal is not Lazarus's love for the Lord, but the Lord's love for Lazarus. Can you see it? He whom you love is sick. Now, Lazarus probably had an affinity and affection for the Lord Jesus, but you do not want to make your appeals to him on the basis of your love, which is fickle and wavers and comes and goes. You want the basis of your appeal to be the constancy of God's love for you. You have your spiritual ups and downs. We all do. But the Lord is a rock. He's consistent. He's immutable. He never changes. Once he declares his love for unlovely ones like you and I, we're safe and secure in it. Somehow Mary and Martha, even in the midst of their emotional travail, understood this. And that's the basis of their appeal. Lord, he whom you love is sick. Now, if this is true, if the Lord really loved this one who is sick and dying, I suppose you could have expected a quick response to it. That, in fact, I'm sure is why Mary and Martha sent word to the Lord. Now, by the way, he's not very close to Bethany right now. Remember, he was in Jerusalem, and the Jewish religious leaders were plotting his overthrow. He wasn't afraid to die, but the timing wouldn't be imposed upon him by a crazed crowd of religious leaders. No, the timing was his and of his death, was his and the Father's. His time had not yet come, so he evaded their grasp somehow and made his way across the Jordan River to the place of his baptism. That's where he went. We read about this last week. So it's a couple days' journey from this site, Bethany. They send word to him, but they're reminding themselves that their brother is loved by the Lord. Therefore, once the Lord receives word of his illness, surely he'll make haste to arrive in Bethany. Nothing will get in his way. The immediacy and urgency of the need will compel the Lord who loves Lazarus to make tracks to Bethany right away, and probably the expectation of Mary and Martha, since they were persuaded of the Lord's love, probably their expectation is that he, well, he may keep their brother somehow from dying because he was the miracle worker. Well, it doesn't quite happen that way. So verse 4 says, But when Jesus heard this, so he received news of Lazarus's illness. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. Interesting. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So the Lord did not promise that Lazarus would not die. In fact, we won't see it tonight, but we'll see it, Lord willing, in weeks to come. Lazarus did die. What then does the Lord means this won't end in death? It seems to have ended in death. No, no. The Lord meant death would not be the ultimate end of Lazarus's sickness. Death was not the goal and the purpose of it all. Death, Lazarus's illness and death would be the means to a far greater end, 
And what is that far greater end? Well, as we read here in verse 4, it is the glory of God. Now, let's admit something. That God would see fit to make use of our pain, our hurt, our hardships, our loss. That God would see fit to make use of all those terrible things for his glory is not easily receivable by us. It's very difficult, a pill to swallow. Has to do with our definition of love. If you loved me, you would keep me from going through all this. And here we're seeing something that flies in, in the face of that human logic. Here we're seeing God who clearly states his love for the victim of a disease, Lazarus. Here we see God clearly stating, no, there's a greater end in view. And even though this hurts, I have something in mind that goes way beyond death. Death won't have the last word in it. No, it will all accrue to the glory of God. Now, folks, we're going to have to accept that. I, just, I don't know of anything else to say. You and I just have to accept the fact that nothing random anymore happens to those who are loved by Jesus and that everything concerning us is managed by him for two purposes, our good and his glory. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even like it. But I must accept it because it's true. The afflictions that befall God's children, whom he loves, just as he loved Lazarus, are designed for our ultimate good and for God's glory. How? I don't know exactly, except I can see that trials are quite a grand opportunity for God to put on display the constancy of his grace and supply so that onlookers see our dependence on him, even when we hurt, ends up not at all being in vain. Through our trials, I can see that God can put on display for us and for others to observe his care, his concern, his power, and his grace. And so when the health of God's kids goes away, it is an opportunity for God to persuade them and others that he has not gone away. And when God's kids pass away, it is an opportunity for God to show those believers who mourn and grieve their passing that he has not passed away. And so though painful things indeed come our way, they're not random and they are not without purpose. And one of the purposes of the hardships and hurts we experience, even as Christians, is, as it says, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, though we cannot, any more than Mary and Martha, we cannot say that things will not end in death. We can say that by God's grace, things will ultimately end, not in death, but in his glory. Now, the Lord, you know this, could have, from where he is, he could have spoken a word of miraculous healing, could he not? He's done it before, but he did not in this case. He chose not. Uh, to do so. I don't understand exactly why he didn't, but he didn't. He decided, you see, that a 
higher purpose could be accomplished in Lazarus's sickness and death. I do not like that, nor do you, especially those of you here who hurt and are grieving the absence of a loved one. I'm not preaching to anyone. I'm just expressing what is biblical truth, though it's hard for us to swallow and internalize. He has often a higher purpose in that which we go through than we can imagine. And I don't think Mary and Martha understood that. They're watching their brother deteriorate before their eyes. Many here have had the experience of sitting by the bedside of a loved one in the process of dying. And you're dying because you feel so helpless and which, oh, wish at times you could trade places and, and, and there's nothing, you just watch the grievous process of a loved one suffering the pain and deterioration perhaps of a disease process. There is no way Mary and Martha understood the rationale behind this any more than you and I could. And I'll tell you why they didn't understand all this. That's because they hadn't gotten to the end of the chapter. And neither have you and I. Now, I'm not talking about chapter 11 for us. I'm talking about the end of the story. Folks, we're in process. We didn't get to the end of the story yet. Therefore, we cannot see the grand purposes of God. There was a lady named Henrietta Mears, a great and godly giant of a lady. She was passing away, and they asked her on her deathbed, uh, Sister Henrietta, if you had your life to live over, what would you do differently? She said, I would have trusted him more. I'll never forget this. We'll all be saying that suddenly at the last chapter when the story of our lives are wrapped up and terminate in our presence with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even without a word, we'll look at him. He'll look to us. Everything will make sense. And we'll see there's been nothing that came our way whimsically and without purpose. And everything was redemptive in nature. Everything was intended by God, the great divine manager of our destiny for our good and for his glory. Well, there's no way Mary and Martha could get it then, and we can't even get it now. But this story, the story of Lazarus, is recorded for us so that we can see how God can and will use even sickness and death for his people's good and for his glory. In fact, we saw this kind of thing before. Back in John chapter 9, we read about a man who was congenitally blind, born blind, blind from birth. The disciples couldn't understand the cause. Causation was their concern. So they asked the Lord who how do we account for the man's blindness? Remember this, who sinned? Was it the man or his parents? And Jesus in John chapter 9 verse 3 answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Can you see the same thing? God is up to something of eternal good and significance through the temporally bad times you and I experience. If you're a Christian, you may suffer. I think I'm not stretching it to say you will suffer. That's the normal Christian life. And sometimes your suffering, let's be honest, mine is directly attributable to our sin. In other words, it's our fault. But at other times, 
your suffering is, as we read, in order that the works of God might be displayed in you. You are a Christian. You were not made in vain. You are a Christian. Your suffering is not in vain. You were made for God's glory, and your suffering is a vehicle permitted by God for his glory. How? When you suffer and yet continue on with God. There are some here I know, even tonight, who really hurt, and yet somehow you managed to get here. When you suffer and still show the signs of confidence in this unseen God, when, though you can't explain what's going on, but somehow have enough revelation of his trustworthiness that you come collectively here to a gathering of his people to give him worship, even through your tears and pain, when you do that, I'll tell you what you do. You smack the adversary right in the mouth. Because he would like to demonstrate you and I are only in this Christian thing for the benefits. And when the benefits dry up, we'll curse him to his name. You remember, that was the cosmic battle in the book of Job. And when we instead, though we cannot comprehend what's going on, when we instead defer to the transcendence of Almighty God, and when we see he must love me, for he gave the ultimate, that is his only begotten son, then even without a satisfying explanation for our hurt and pain, we enter into worship and it punches Satan right in the mouth. I've shared this with you. You're familiar, I think, with this true story. There was a man named Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner. He and his wife had an eight-year-old boy who had an unusual disease called progeria, premature aging, eight years old. Bones were brittle. Internal organs began to decay and showed the signs of aging equivalent to one 80, not eight. Ultimately, this eight-year-old died in sight of his dad. I do not want to criticize too harshly the rabbi. The rabbi was trying to make sense of all this. He, a believer in God, how do I pair together what happened to my son with this loving God. And the rabbi had options. He said, either God uh, is able to have healed my son but was not willing, or God was willing but not able. Yeah, those are the only options in his mentality. The rabbi said, I cannot accept the first that God is able but not willing. He said, I could not go on following a God like that. And so he rejected that and opted for the second explanation for the suffering he and family were going through. He said, no, God does care. He's willing, but he's not able. His ability to extend himself into our lives and rescue us from suffering and death 
is very limited because he's so much the great beyond. He so transcends the universe. Wherever he is, somewhere in the lofty places of heaven, his arm is too short to extend itself down to earth and rescue us from these things, which he would if he was able. So God is willing. In fact, said the rabbi, he grieves along with us when things like this happen and feels just as helpless as we are. He wrote a book about it. When bad things happen to good people. It was a bestseller. Well, there was a man, is alive today still, named Warren Wearsby, who wrote a book not to put the rabbi down, but to rescue us from these two mere uh, optional explanations of suffering. And he saw as a Christian, an alternative explanation. He wrote a book. You see, it was a response to the rabbi's book. The rabbi's book was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Wearsby's book, you can get it. It's a good one. When Bad Things Happen to God's People. And in the book, Wearsby wrote, some suffering is the sad consequence of our own disobedience. But some suffering is simply for the glory of God to refute Satan's charge that we obey God only to escape trials and enjoy blessings. There is often something bigger than ourselves involved in the trials that we are called to endure. I believe Warren Wiersbe's take on human suffering is much more consistent with scripture than the rabbis. Now, one of the reasons you and I have such difficulty reconciling our pain with the promises of God, forgive me if I'm a little insulting, is that I think we really misunderstand the promises of God. Folks, God never promised us a pain-free life. God never promised us, though he loves us and has redeemed us, he never promised us immunity from the pain of natural disasters. Harvey affected and afflicted the saved and the unsaved in our community alike. God never promised us immunity from harsh medical diagnoses. Cancer victimizes Believers and non-believers alike. God never promised us immunity from the process of having to grieve the loss of a loved one. For death affects believers and non-believers alike. The problem is not that God has not kept his word. The problem is we have misinterpreted God's word. God never promised we would not suffer. He never, ever promised it. But he did promise we would never suffer alone. And he did promise that we would never suffer for no good reason. Now, the notion that God could make use of suffering and loss and pain Hardship and hurt and disease for our own good and for his glory, I tell you again, is hard to accept, but it is true. And I suppose the premier example of this is located on the cross. The cross tells me that sonship is not inconsistent with suffering. 
There was a truckload of pain and suffering located on the cross. It was the most excruciating form of capital punishment to this day devised by humankind, and on it the very Son of God was impaled, not for his sin, for yours and mine, which he bore. And in the course of an excruciating termination on the cross, what happened is that the Son suffered fatherlessness. Do you remember when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Plenty of suffering. On the cross, the son suffered fatherlessness. And because of the cross, the father suffered sonlessness. The cross illustrates to me that there is no inconsistency between the love of God and the suffering which sometimes befalls even those whom he loves. Now, there's not a Christian in here who would argue (laughs) with what emanates, the benefits, blessings which emanate from the suffering which took place on the cross. In it, we can see God's greater good and ultimate purposes, even through pain and suffering. Not a one of us would question it. We can see how the suffering of the very Son of God on the cross has led to our good and God's glory. So then, the Lord Jesus does not assure Mary and Martha that Lazarus will not die. He assures them this won't be the end of the story. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is removed. Death, the last enemy has been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ who rose up from it as the first fruits of life from death. He assures Mary and Martha the death of their beloved brother will not be the end of the story. No, things will not end in death. There will be death, but death will not have the final word. Though Lazarus is ill unto death, and though he will die, and though Mary and Martha have had to stand by and watch their brother go through this process of dying and death, yet we must not conclude from it that death has the final word, nor must we conclude from it that God has ceased to love us. So verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved the entire family there in Bethany because they belong to him and he loves those whom he has redeemed. But here's the problem. God's love is categorically different than human love. Someone put it well. The love of God for us is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. I don't like that. Neither do you. But the Father loves us so much that he will prune us even more. He will rid us of baggage. He will conform us to his image. He'll change us into his likeness. He will cause growth, and growth requires change, and change hurts, and adversity oftentimes drives our spiritual growth much more than prosperity. So God's love is different than ours. It is not a pampering love as ours is prone to be. His is a perfecting love. And you can get a glimpse of this in the very next verse, verse 6. So when he heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, 
He then, am I reading this right? He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, we've been told in verse 5 that this Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And now we are told in the very next verse, verse 6, that he delayed in coming to them in the midst of their crisis. And can you see God's love to be a perfecting kind of a love, not a pampering kind of a love? He delayed because he loved them. He allowed them to suffer for greater purposes, which at the time there is no way they could see or understand. And so when we suffer, I'm sure we're no different than Mary and Martha. We're prone to ask, if not literally, then in our hearts, two questions which are common to humankind. The first is why? And then the second, when we're in pain, is how long? Those are the questions we ask. And I have bad news. I don't think this side of the story, this side of heaven, I don't think here in the midst of the chapter, before we get to its grand conclusion, we're going to get satisfying answers to those two haunting questions. Why and how long? I don't think we're going to get at. Mary and Martha didn't until the end of the chapter. I think that'll be true of us as well. Until then, we have to cling to this truth. Everything we experience is being managed by our perfect and loving Father. And as we will see, not tonight, but later on, Lord willing, as we will see with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, God's delays are specifically the delays, not of indifference, but of love. We will see that God's delays are purposeful. Now, I suppose our kind of love would, would have rushed us over to Bethany, no matter what, to try to get there before death ensued and trying to avert the crisis. But God's kind of love, let's face it, is different. It just acts, it behaves differently. God's love knows what's best, and we don't get it. So this can't be denied. The Lord's delay in coming uh, would certainly not at the time have felt much like love to Mary and Martha. Wouldn't have felt much like love, but it was. You see, they hadn't yet gotten to the end of the chapter. And folks, I'm repeating this because it's true. I hope we get it. We haven't gotten to the end of the story yet either. That's why so much that befalls us doesn't make sense yet. We haven't gotten to the end of the story. But by the end of the chapter, Mary and Martha and others will see that God's love for them planned something for them through their suffering that they could not possibly have imagined. And when the story of this life comes to an end for you and I, we too will suddenly see that God's love for us planned and purposed, even through our pain and suffering and hardship and loss, things we could not possibly have imagined either. Now, I mentioned earlier, I'm persuaded there are some here in our midst now who are here even though you are hurt. It's a wonderful thing that you've entrusted your pain to this gathering tonight and that you have enough of a notion of the bigness and goodness of your father 
that you've come to give him worship and praise no matter what. Satan hates it and Savior rejoices. You are glorifying him in that even without explanations you're coming uh, to worship him. And I want to, as we close, pray specifically for you. First, let me share this, a poem someone wrote. I don't know who. God hath not promised skies ever blue, flower-strewn pathways always for you. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, nor peace without pain. But he hath promised strength from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. Now, I want you to be honest. If you hurt, these words sound good, but you're on empty with regard to strength from above. You're on empty with regard to a sense of God's unfailing sympathy and undying love. If that's you, I want to ask you, while we bow our heads for your privacy and confidentiality, could you bow your head and just close your eyes? I promise I won't draw this out. For you who are really feeling, I hurt and am losing a sense of the nearness of God. I feel like I really need a fresh supply of strength from above to get through this process. If it's you, could you just raise your hand? I'll not embarrass you in any other fashion. Thank you. You could put it down. I see people in the back. Is there anybody else? Believers who hurt. Thank you. In the front, you could put down your hand. Thank you. Over there in that section. Anybody else? I'm only doing this because I want us to pray for you. Here you are. I can't tell you what damage you're doing to the prince of darkness. <laughs> Who's persuaded folks only follow the lover of our soul to the extent he continues to give us gifts? No, you love him because you know he first loved you. And even in the midst of what you're going through, you're in a gathering of worshipers to give worship, again, even through your tears to him. Is there anybody else in that situation? You just need a boost, a help, a fresh touch of God's comfort and spirit. Anyone else, just raise your hand and then put it down. All right. Thank you so much for doing that. You could put your hands down. Now, folks uh, remaining in this prayer posture, if you don't mind, we'll pray for these who've unashamedly said, I'm struggling, I hurt, I need help from on high. Now the rest of us who haven't had tonight to raise up our hand, now we have a responsibility to pray for the others who are hurting. That's what we do when we come together. We bear one another's burdens. So I want to give you an opportunity silently where you are, knowing in your midst are ones, brothers and sisters who are broken and need help to go on. Can you? God knows their name. You don't have to. God knows the specifics of their situation. You and I don't have to. Can you just take a minute or two right where you are, pray for them, and allow me to close us?
Come to me, Lord Jesus, is your grand invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're in the midst of brothers and sisters who are sorely in need of that very thing. In effect, they've come to you, Lord. Here they are, the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, would you give them what only you can? Hope, comfort, sustenance, daily bread to get through this day and enough sustenance for tomorrow and the next. Oh, God in heaven, if you see fit not to give us all the pieces of this puzzle called life yet, at least give these who hurt a fresh revelation of you. A loving God who stands not with clenched fist or lecture, but with nail-pierced hands, far extended, opened wide, and again this grand invitation, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you give these who hurt? Oh, God, even now, rest. The kind which passes understanding. The capacity to go on. And we look forward to the day when, at the end of the chapter, they say, Ah, now I know why my perfectly loving Father allowed me to go through all this. Until then, I pray with the eyes of faith, you will enable each to go on, bringing glory to your name by clinging to you for blessing. I pray each who hurts would have in his or her life this notion we've seen earlier in the Bible, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what I pray, that even in their pain and Affliction, even though they hurt, their grip on you would persist. They would not let you go until you bless them. You love to be put in that spot because that is exactly the way you're glorified. You bless those who are brokenhearted. Would you do so for those in our midst tonight? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.